1: with Tim Ioncow. It is old fucking official. All right? Stop playing. Download and subscribe. Library rap. The hip-hop interviews with Tim Ioncow. It's cold.
3: Yeah.
4: In 2005 when I first heard the album It's called Life by Eternia I was amazed by the bars, the confidence, the wordplay The everything Eternia displayed on the album She's about to drop a new album called Free with Rel McCoy That said, 16 years later She continues to display what makes her great And what makes hip-hop great Eternia, welcome to Library Rap The Hip-Hop interviews with Hemant Gil Thank you so much for being here
5: Oh man, that was a great introduction. Thank you. I didn't know you were familiar with It's Called Life. That's a that's that's like only the heads know it's called life.
3: I won't preach to you. I'm from the same system and that ain't
5: my mission. I'm just one C and I can't be
3: everything to everybody, no reason, no logic mass. But stars uh, lack content, don't whack it, uh-uh. Find a new topic. Uh, and that's the ironic part of this thing. Like you can't earn respect in this game until you and So in
4: college I did a uh um, uh I grew up in New York City and I, you know, went through this whole stage of um in the nineties of like whatever was on the radio I couldn't deal with type stuff. Um, and then I got really, and then uh, my friend in '97 played me, um, or '98 uh, played me, Black Star's album. And I was in college at okay. the time, and I was like, I gotta play this for the masses, you know. And then I got really into that kind of just like, you know, listen to Black Star, but then listen to Wordsworth, and you know, get into the, I like, got everyone. Uh, so then after I graduated in 2001, I continued, obviously, before kids, to still delve in the music, and then I found you, and I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible, you know? Um, so-
5: Thank you. That that was my era, too. Blackstar was definitely like a, you know, like a, just a really seminal or whatever the word you want to use. It was just really, it marked my Coming of age time, my teenage
4: years. Uh, you're a Canadian artist, right? You're from Canada. Um, and yeah. you think about artists that paved the way for Canadian artists. You have to think of my show, Fresh West, and uh, and Michi Me, Mi, right? Yes. So these are two MCs that helped pave the way. Um, what were, and, and, you know, and you could talk about how Blackstar, and please do, about how they impacted you as well. But what were these two artists? What were their impact on, on you? And then how from when you saw of them, how did how do you incorporate kind of them into you as, you know, yourself, the artist at Eternia?
5: It's a good question. Yeah, my my so I'm just trying to remember my first memory of Maestro Fresh West would probably be seeing him his music videos on television, um, late eighties. Or maybe I heard Backbone Slide before I saw it, but I just remember it, Backbone Slide so I was a child when um maestro dropped and he definitely was somebody that was as large to us as any other single or like pop group that we were listening to at the time he was huge is huge continues to be huge and um and we used to do our own. Uh, so in the 80s, late 80s, my father owned this camera. And most people didn't have home video recording at the time. But my father had this, like, it was like a studio-grade, like, journalist-sized camera, like, huge, um, with those big belt packs. And we used to set it up on a tripod. We had all the gear. And we used to do these music videos. And we would lip sync to the music that we were listening to. This was, this was all directed by my brother and my, my father was um a nightclub owner and a studio owner so we had a lot of actual real instruments and gear so our our music videos were with real instruments like full-size congas and drum sets and trumpets and um you know keyboards and like like the real stuff <laughs> and we'd set it up and and so backbone slide was definitely one of the the ones that we were lip-syncing to when i was before the age of 10 um Later, full circle, my first music video uh, or single, really, in life, Sorrow Song, one of my first singles in life, solo singles, that is, Mm -hmm. Um, he ended up being in the music video and and in the video, he kind of acts as a mentor and kind of, you know, kind of shoves me off onto the stage, you know, he he speaks some wisdom in my ear and gives me a hug and just kind of, so there was like, kind of like this thing where Maestro was passing the torch in a sense Mm -hmm. and I, and I I rocked his gear um in that video we've we've been really good friends ever since he's he's such a head he's such a fan of other people's artistry and emceeing he he gets so excited about other people and 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 how they like he gets inspired by the younger generation he's amazing he stays young forever he still looks as young as he did (laughs) so so yeah so maestro was definitely like some of my earliest memories of Listening to music as a kid and being hype and Michi me too, but I remember Michi me. I think just because of my age, I remember her the most in Ragged Death, mm-hmm. which was this like, yeah, like this metal group that she was a part of. Um, and then of course I remember that joint she did with Estero that was later. Um, I think it was Don't Want to Be Your Slave or whatever Slave, maybe it was called. But um, but yeah, Michi too is just like at the time. I mean, Maestro and Michi were in the states and. Just, just like hanging out with and and shoulder to shoulder with Big Daddy Kane or with, you know, um, the female counterparts at the time, uh, they were huge. It, it wasn't just Canadian hip hop history; they are a part of hip hop history, right. um, and they still are honored as legends to this day, which I think is really important. and And it's really dope that I can say that I can call them friends, and and I guess in a way peers, although obviously I look up to them, but, but we get to rock the same stages sometimes and do shows together and see each other backstage. And that's just like a beautiful, it's always full circle. It's always really beautiful.
4: Is that always a weird thing for I mean, was that, was anything surprising, I guess, about when you first, you know, met them or, uh, you know, I always feel like, you know, you, you look up to these people and then you meet them and then you're just like, in awe right of the attack you know yeah. uh, like what do i do yeah. or
5: oh. also i was in awe of like kish dream warriors these are other canadian acts that when i finally met i was like oh my gosh and you know everyone has been so cool like i think sometimes you get nervous meeting people you look up to because they won't they might not live up to what you have in your mind maybe they're having a bad day maybe they'll be rude to you but these people are not they are just full of uh, love and light, and 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 just really gracious, really professional. I think they know that, like you know, you don't know who's on your way up or who's on their way out, and they just treat everyone with dignity and respect. And yeah, it's just cool to meet people that you admire, and then just be like, "Yo, you are just really cool." I get a lot so, of wisdom um, from, from Wes all the time. Every single time I hit, I see him. It could be ten minutes. He's like dropping down, like he's just like, "Yo, here's here's this wisdom for you. Here's this wisdom for you." You know what I'm saying?
4: Uh, yeah, that's so. I, I want to turn to uh, uh, so. You know, my understanding. And you know, prior to us recording the interview, I you know, talked to you about the uh, the Canadian laws and radio play and air, you know, TV play, and how about I think it's about thirty five percent of our Canadian artists are to be played on the airwaves um, oh, it, before British or American music is played. Um, can you talk about kind of these laws, but also how, how, how have they helped you? You think as, as an artist, but also do they, do they, do they hurt any, do they hurt artists at all? Or is it, I mean, cause they're trying, I don't know if they're trying too hard, if that's a good phrase for it, but um, can you just talk about how this is, this is helpful for Canadian artists, but also if it's hurtful at all.
5: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause it's almost been like, you know, when you, when you're a fish and you swim in the ocean, you don't really think about the water it's, it's been something that's been there since before I was doing music. And so I, I almost can con the the percentage of can con is what we call it Canadian content. And I, I never really thought about it. Um, I think at one point the percentage was higher could be wrong, but I think at one point it was higher. Um, uh, That's just my memory, but uh, I'd have to fact check that, but it's very necessary, extremely necessary. So, um, and the reason why is because otherwise, so American media and culture, whether it be TV or radio or or the music industry, whatever, it just has so much more, um, infrastructure and financial backing behind it that without that mandatory 35% of Canadian content, we would just get swallowed up with 100% of American content by virtue of the fact that, you know, sometimes it's bigger budgets, and it's more exciting, and they're better at marketing and promotion and they're and, you know, all these things. Um, uh, When I started doing hip hop in Canada, uh, BET was not a station that we could access in Canada. MTV was not a station we could access in Canada, except for if you had like satellite or something, but not like regular cable. And other American outlets were not accessible. And of course, the internet wasn't like that yet. So it was kind of beautiful because in a sense, it created this bubble of, not a complete bubble. Everyone was still trying to access American content, but but it created a little bit of a safety net for Canadian artists to, to develop uniquely, like their own sound, their own voice, and to thrive. And then around, I want to say it was like 97 maybe or something I want around there, BET came to Canada. And even then you saw the impact of that on the way our artists sounded. You know, they started to like, I think, you know, we had Toronto's version of Mob Deep or we had Toronto's okay. version of blah, blah, blah. Like it was just like, okay, now this is just like carbon copies of what you're seeing. And, and it was influencing the culture, especially hip hop culture drastically. And so... Um, if it wasn't for that mandatory thirty-five percent, I just think we would just we. It's protecting our creative arts really across the board um, from complete. I don't know what the word is, but but um, you know just being usurped completely by by American content. And I'm, that's not to say that I don't love American content. I do, and I'm I'm in the states uh, pretty much as much as I'm in Canada, and and I um, I consider myself a fish in water in both places, but but it's just. Uh, It's important to protect our voice, our identity, our sound, and even the ability for ourselves to thrive as artists in Canada, which is already still difficult. It was more difficult probably pre-Drake. Drake Drake made it more of an industry than it was before. Um, You know, Canadian, as a side point, Canadian music industry has historically always been very white, very folk and singer-songwriter focused. And so, um, you know, breaking that as a quote unquote urban artist or whatever you want to call it, a hip hop artist has always been difficult unless you sing and play the guitar like some of our rappers do. But, um, but it's been hard, you know, like, like, um, there's just an amazing podcast that I'd recommend called, this is, I think it's called, this is not about Drake or this podcast is not about Drake or something. (laughs) But my friend Ty Harper put it together and it's about the hip hop, the development of the hip hop scene in Canada, um, pre-Drake and also, you know, the challenges that people faced and, and, and how things tra- changed when Drake came around because really as an infrastructure, like, you know, Cardi was dropping singles with Akon that were huge around the world and still not getting love on radio or in the media as much as like in Canada. It was just like there was no outlet for that kind of music in a way that would sustain and support you so i don't know if i'm summarizing this correctly but just to say the 35 percent is the least is, is is just the bare minimum of what we require to to hopefully thrive as a canadian artist with canadian identity
4: how, do, how does that i mean i imagine there's a um yeah i talked about i talked about uh you know Discovering, I guess, Black Star right in 97. Yes, 8. And, yes. and you know, then I did a radio show in college, and it was like the underground hip hop show, uh, and you know, it was against whatever commercial stuff was being played on the mm-hmm.
5: radio. I um, came up in a very similar vein.
4: So how how does that? I guess what is the what's the underground hip hop experience or or, or or music in Canada versus the I guess the commercial hip hop music? How does I guess how does that argument maybe play out? with and then it kind of tying in the 35 percent that of artists you want to hear on the radio i mean ours is like so now that drake is you know drake obviously the most popular um art, hip-hop artist i think in the world right now um right. you know he he if you, if you play him on the radio you technically you, he's part of that 35 percent. correct yeah
5: right Which I'm sure impacts everyone else drastically. Right,
4: right, exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah,
5: yeah. I mean, that's an interesting question. I can only speak, uh, you know, I'd say post 2000, I spent probably as much time stateside as I did in Canada. So I'm like, not as clued into, for example, I was in New York City. When I moved to New York, nobody knew who Drake was outside of being the actor on that show that he was on. Degrassi, Um, Degrassi, yes, of course. And then, you know, I came back. A couple years later and I was like this guy was the hottest shit and I was like whoa what just happened you know so there's definitely been segments of Toronto's hip-hop history and Canadian hip-hop history that I've been not plugged into um but I will say that in the 90s it felt like anybody that was doing hip-hop in Canada was immediately independent or underground just by virtue of the fact that the infrastructure wasn't there and it wasn't you know Canadian the music industry wasn't really supporting hip-hop that much um other than things like college radio and and you know stuff like that so and a couple shows on Much Music, which is our version of MTV, but but just very limited airtime. And they and 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 I think the VJs of those shows, the, or the producers or the creators of those shows, would have to tell you how much they fought to even get those shows on the air. Um, so so that being said, you were kind of always independent or underground if you were doing hip hop in Canada. Now that's different, I'm sure, and I don't know that experience. Um, I've been independent my whole life, uh, underground my whole life, kind of by necessity. Although, also, I'm very. Uh, Uh, you know, I, I like to be in control of my image and my sound. So I probably wouldn't have fit into the major label model anyways of like the, we're marketing a Coke bottle kind of thing. We're marketing a product. I, I, that's not just, that's just not my ethos musically, but, but yeah, I think uh, it'd be interesting to know now where artists in Canada, hip hop artists place themselves on the scale of independent or underground versus mainstream or commercial, um, I don't know about the labels there. I remember at the time, like, knowing everybody that were, like, you always knew the A&Rs at the major labels in Canada, which is, like, you know, the the, the department or the subsidiary of the American one, right? Um, thinking about Universal Music uh, or Sony or whatever. Um, you'd always know the, like, urban A&R. Like, everybody knew them, and that person held so much power. But even then, it's, like, how much could they negotiate for their artists? How How, what, how big was their budget for their artists? I think they struggled as well to to kind of do their artists justice. Even the ones that did sign to majors, I'm thinking about people like Cardi or chaos who was huge or, you know, other, other artists like that. So, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, um, I think those people held a lot of weight and a lot of sway and a lot of influence in our community, but I think on the larger scale of the music industry as a whole, they probably were still relegated to, you know, their hands were tied in a lot of ways.
4: As someone who many moons ago did, once he got out of college, uh, was helping edit, uh, you know, education grants. Uh, I, I was interested when I and I, you know, learned about the you know, grant writing or grant process for artists when they decide to create music or make music and that kind of process how it works. Uh, reaching out mm-hmm. to organizations or government entities. Uh mm-hmm. can you talk about how that has helped you the grant writing part has helped you in your career but also the, the amount of work that mm-hmm. it takes to get these grants and, and kind of the deadlines that you're under or even yeah. the what you have to, you know. I mean, you know, with with grant writing you always have to show that you're the process, the process, the progress you're making uh, to prove that you're not using the money just to use the money. Uh, Can you talk about kind of this whole process of it?
5: Yeah, it's it's definitely changed over the years. So first of all, grants for me in Canada have been a game changer. They are the infrastructure. So in Canada, we didn't have the label backing or financial support. We had grants and even people that were signed to majors still relied on the grants whether you're major or underground, the grants was the financial infrastructure. So there was the 35% CanCon that has to be played and the grants were the financial, also from the government were financial infrastructure to help actually just create artistic Canadian content across the board, whether hip hop or not. And without it, there might not be like, you know, we'd be swept away. And so, um, early on, I, I accessed a lot of grants. I, I learned how to write grants to a manager I had at the time who was the same age as me and just learning. And, you know, we would kind of do them together. And then after a while, I was writing grants on my own. Um, I can say as a side point, um, I know so many artists and so many people that are creatives that are like, F school, you don't need university. Well, I'll tell you this. I don't know, I don't know a single artist, and, I, and forgive me if I'm wrong, I don't know a single artist that didn't go to university that can do those grants without somebody else's help. If, if there's one major thing that I learned and, and I specifically you know I was in I was in a you know I was in, at Ryerson for journalism and writing was one of my main you know majors, I guess you could say in, in my four year program. but like if I didn't go to university, I don't think that I could navigate the grant writing system properly and effectively. Um, so that's one major plus for just getting a degree is just learning how to write those grants because um, it was very similar to me like it's like, uh, similar to an assignment in school, if, if, if your professor says, okay, you know, you have to do your thesis statement and write your essay and these are the things that I need you to prove, the grant was similar. It was like, you know, these are the points you need to cover. This is what we need to know. This is, you know, this is how you're being rated. Very much like an academic scholastic thing, and so um, I think that I excelled at grant writing because I excelled in school. So, just a side note for people who are wondering whether school is worth it. But yeah, so we've—I've lost count. I mean, upwards of a hundred thousand. I don't know if we're upwards of two hundred thousand dollars now, but definitely. And for Canada, I know that doesn't sound like a large budget with American budgets, but for Canada, that's a significant amount of money. Never a penny in my pocket, um, but always money that went directly towards creating. So money for creating an album, money for marketing an album, money for music videos, money for touring, uh, money for uh, all different things, uh, you know, and, and they're very strict. It sounds like, ooh, this gold, this pot of gold, you know, that you just access. They're extremely strict. And if you've, as you have written grants and received grants, you know how strict it can be. And, and um, you really have to know how to, how to navigate that. Uh, some more strict than others, actually. I think I struggle a lot with the grants where you have to kind of prove that you're like commercially viable through your numbers, uh, whether that be actual sales or your, for example, your social numbers. Like now it's all about your socials and how much numbers you have on your socials. And and that I struggle with. I think I, I presently, although I in the past I did receive those grants, presently, I do better with the grants that are more artistic based. So they're looking more at the merit of you as an artist and your sound and your vision and how feasible your project goals are. than they are, okay, how popular are you? You know, the popularity contest thing. So there's different types of grants and you kind of have to know your audience when you're writing to them and what it is that they're actually caring about. Um, And every single, you know, jury, I actually sit on a jury uh, for Factor Canada, which is notoriously one of the more, I guess you could say industry-based grants where it's like really about like how poppin' are you? You know what I'm saying? And and I've sat on a couple of those jury rounds. But but you kind of have to know your audience when you write grants because some juries are going to care more about how poppin' are you and other juries are going to care more about just your artistic vision and your project goals. So so yeah, and of course the music and how it sounds is always um, uh, integral and essential to, to those applications. But but um, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm like losing track of your actual question. But for me, I would just say that I would not... None of my music or most of my music would not exist without grants. And on a personal note, I actually have always been someone who needed a deadline, an external deadline imposed by someone else, not my own, to complete anything. That's just the way I, I, I operate in that paradigm. So I'm like a lot of artists, I know a lot of creatives hate that. They actually don't like working to deadlines. And I'm the opposite. I thrive with deadlines. So if it wasn't for grants, forget the money. I, I just might not have an album because I wouldn't be... Focused enough or driven enough. But I think the minute someone else says, okay, this is when it's due, I'm like, all right, go time. Because I don't like to let people down and I like to be a person of word and I like to, I like to. I guess I'm an achiever or something or an over... I always like to get A's in school. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it was like this grant body that just gave me a bunch of money is telling me it's due this time. I am on it, you know? So so I think even just the, the motivation, I would say, to, to complete projects came a lot from from writing those grants. So, so yeah, every... Album, not the mixtapes, but every album I've dropped has been financed not entirely by grants, and it's not like we had an abundance of money. And the money has actually gotten smaller and smaller and smaller over the years. You'd think it'd be the opposite. The largest grants I received was when I was younger, but um, and now they're quite small. The budgets, but the, it's it's a beautiful thing, and I'm I'm really grateful to Canada for that as an option.
4: I don't want to stick on grants, but the creative creative process wise, um, are you? Are you, before before writing, before going to apply for the grant, are you, have you, are you creating the music prior to that, or are you waiting to get the money and then create the music? Because I feel like there's that extra pressure once you get the money, like, oh, shit, I got I to gotta make music now. Uh, A
5: little bit of both, but usually most of the grants I apply to do not want you to have created the music before you apply. So okay. if you have created the music, you kind of have to pretend like you haven't.
4: You know what ah, I'm saying? Got you,
5: got you, got you. Uh, but most of the time I'm creating either from scratch or I might have some drafts, some scratch tracks, but but they're not they're not close to completion yet. I'm
3: just one I can't everything everybody,
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra
4: Uh, I want to turn to your music. Uh, You know, you you debuted your album, it's called Life in 2005, which was nominated for Rap Record of the Year at the 2006 Juno Awards. Um, Your last album, At Last, was 2010, uh, 2011, Um, and now you're about to release this new album. When you first started, uh, what did you want to bring to this art and, and to the culture and what did you want to get from the art and the culture?
5: a very good question, and I might mention that At Last was nominated as
4: well. So, oh, nice. so, sorry about that.
5: Yeah, um, no, no, you're fine. That's it. So, what what was my intention, and what was I hoping to get from the culture? Is that the question?
4: Yeah, like what did you want to give to the culture, and what did you want to get to the, from the culture? Give
5: and get. Wow, that's a very good question. I don't know if I've ever quantified that in my own mind. Uh, hmm, what did I want to give? What did I want to get? I think what I wanted to give was just a very honest perspective. Uh, coming from my heart a very vulnerable and transparent and real depiction of uh, whatever it is I'm an expert in and the only thing I can say I'm an expert in is my experience really um, so I think I think there was a bit of that that I wanted to give my my I always held myself just to Yeah, I've never, everyone's motivated by different things. I was motivated to express uh, hip hop was always a form of, I guess you could say therapy for me and and to be as vulnerable and honest as possible. Although some of my tracks are more like, you know, you still have those joints where you're like, yeah, I'm better than you. But in general, (laughs) those weren't the ones that I I wanted to focus on or get excited about. Uh, It was really just the, let me show you my heart. I think that was what I wanted to do is I wanted to be as honest as possible it's funny janice joplin i quoted her in in the track goodbye and it was like to be righteous to myself to be real she says Mm -hmm. that and i like that the concept of being righteous uh not righteous as in like spiritually righteous but righteous as in just keeping it 100 you know what i'm saying right um so i think that was probably off the top of my head I, i i could list many but off the top of my head that was the main thing that i was trying to give to the culture um, and also it's nice to be a different voice. I think that there's a lot of the same thing in hip hop. There always has been, and, and they're predominantly black male voices, uh, which is necessary, but I just think it was important to be an honest and transparent real voice that happens to be different than black male. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's, I, I really value across the board, not just in hip hop culture, but in any culture, I, I value diversity. Um, You know, church culture needs diversity, every culture needs diversity, corporate culture needs diversity, and hip hop does too. So I think it was important to be a voice that that did bring different things to the table, because by virtue of the fact that just my identity is different, you know. Um, So that's what I wanted to give a diverse and honest and vulnerable perspective and just, yeah. Yeah and do the best that I can do with that um, in terms of my art, just be as honest as possible. And what I wanted to get from the culture, I think when you're young, what you want to get from the culture is very kind of simplistic and basic. It's just kind of like, I just want to be respected by my audience and my peers. And I always wanted to be, I think for me personally, as a, I'm actually Middle Eastern, but perceived as, you know, just Caucasian as a white girl from Canada. um, I think I've wanted to be respected by people that I considered the hip hop greats, because um, it just felt like it, I, I felt like most of my career I was just fighting for some form of respect or recognition. Because anywhere I went, it was just kind of like, yeah, right. Like when I came up in hip hop, nobody really looked like me that was at the hip hop venues or the concerts. There was a couple girls in the room, most of them were just the girlfriends of whatever dudes were there you know, were they heads? Yeah, they probably were. But like, you know, it was just very rare that there was participants. They were there, but they were just rare. And so I think being the perennial underdog and being the one that's constantly underestimated for the longest time, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, my, my, what I wanted to get, like I was just trying to prove myself and be accepted by hip hop culture, you know, as, as someone that was perceived as somewhat of an outsider. And then once I realized that I didn't have to do that anymore, (laughs) probably around at last, I'd say, like, that's how many years. And I I was doing it since the 90s. um, And that was 2010. So I think probably around at last, I realized, oh, shit, like, I don't need to, like, prove myself. I don't need to, like, prove. I don't need to earn my place in hip-hop anymore. And at that point, um, I think anything I got from hip-hop culture, uh, especially I think about the community and the people, was just a bonus it was just like this loving reciprocal exchange of like uh, just energy you know what i'm saying um it was beautiful to be honored by people that i admired growing up like dj premiere for example or the source or like these things that like were markers you know it's like ooh like this 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 you know this this outlet that really knows their hip hop is giving me a good review or something that was cool that that meant a lot especially as a white chick from canada but um but what I wanted to get, I, I always just, I think at this stage of the game, presently, if I could speak for right now, my, my goal or my reason for creating is simply because it's in me. And I think in order to honor ourselves, we need to, you know, whatever's inside needs to come out. So it's in me, it needs to come out, whatever happens after that is none of my business, meaning if tons of people love the record, that's wonderful. If nobody listens to the record, sure, that will be disappointing. But that's not my business. Like it's like I did my job. My job was to empty myself of myself, you know. And so at this point, the, what I get from it is just a bonus.
4: I mean, you know, you you, you look at your discography, right? And then and, and as you mentioned, that last 2010 was and uh, you know the last album you made um, prior to the one that's about to drop. Uh, and yeah, I know you, you dropped a few singles in between this time, but, you know, essentially as a, yeah, as a fan, if I look at it, I'm like, wow, why, you know, attorney is not making music anymore, right? Yeah, I know, I know. Um, yeah. And you please, you know, please answer this as low as you want, as much as you want. But, you know, I, I can't imagine um, walking away from anything that you're, you, one, you love, two, you're really good at. Right uh, and how much of a decision or harder of a decision it was yeah. to make. Um, if you can, if you want to, please, would you talk, just talk about the process of why, you know, why did you walk away or maybe why did you stop making albums?
5: Yeah, that, that um, I still to this very day, and it's been over a decade ago, I still to this very day feel very conflicted about my decisions. And I like to say, I don't live with regrets, but I do wonder often, man, like, was that like the worst decision I ever made in my life? And And by that, I mean, specifically moving away from new york city in 2013 because i feel like moving away from new york was also kind of stepping away from uh being an active full-time hip-hop artist so as you mentioned i did hit some stages i did drop some singles but i wasn't actively recording albums and touring and so it was almost like i wasn't um you know like i just disappeared and uh and there's this line in most people, and I feel like it summarizes it better than I can here. And I just I wrote in that song, I said, I don't know if it was God or my sin, self-sabotage or wisdom of the age is kicking in. All I know is I left. And now when I look back, I often wonder if I missed my one shot for impact. And that's how I feel because when I left, really the glass ceiling was breaking and the doors, the gatekeepers that held doors closed for many people were opening wide for me. Um, so it definitely felt like an inopportune time. A lot of it was just circumstances, um, things happening around me that, that, that led to that decision. Uh, I could say it was God too. Like I'm always seeking God. I'm always praying. I'm always, okay, what do you want God? And I do think there's a part of me that feels like my relationship with hip hop was not calibrated or aligned properly. So it had become the slave driver in a sense, um, or my desires for it or just like my need for it, my need for whatever to be successful at it, had become the slave driver and I was more of the slave. And so I think that really needed to be recalibrated. Um that happens a lot, but for for people that get like knee deep into a, into the music industry, it's like at first you're doing it for the love and then all of a sudden it's like you kind of feel like you have to, and then it becomes like this warped relationship. So so I think there was a little bit of that that required recalibration, which required stepping back. But at the time I can't tell you this is why I did it. Now I'm in hindsight, I'm trying to explain it. You know what I'm saying? But ultimately, you know, I took a hit emotionally, mentally. I had like a like a mental health crisis uh, mid, like I want to say 2016, and I think uh, in hindsight, a, a large part of that, like a work burnout. I was actually working at a long-term care home, and um, and it and yeah, it was like this mental health burnout. Which, by the way, side note, if you look up all the symptoms and what happens after you have a concussion. Very similar, like almost identical and a concussion is considered a head injury so I just think that people should consider work burnout and mental health burnouts like a head injury because there's so much information about concussions and I had a concussion six months after I had my work burnout and I was just like yo all of these symptoms I've been had already like this whole time you know what I'm saying so that's interesting, yes, including like the physical stuff like the dizziness and the nausea and all that but anyways um what I wanted to say is is I think a part of what I realized in hindsight after that work burnout was that came a lot from not basically like squashing my creative self. So like this part of me that needs to be active in order to not just sur- not just thrive, but survive. That part had been like completely starved out, and I think that was a part of I, you know one of the things that led to that mental health burnout. So, so yeah, I, I think um, I think extremes beget extremes. I was all just hip hop and like trying to trying to be successful, bar none. You know, relationships didn't matter as much, even friendships, my family. Like, I'm not saying I didn't love them, but they came second. To my, to my career. And then the pendulum shifted entirely in the other direction where I was like, yo, I just want to do acts of service. I want to have this altruistic job where I work with people in their nineties. I want to just be around my family and my friends. Like, it was just kind of like I had been starved out when it came to the the otherness, like being focused on others as opposed to focus on self. And, and yo, I don't care how like beautiful you are. If you're promoting yourself as a hip hop artist, you kind of need to like focus on yourself because it's self-promotion. It's really, it can get ugly. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I think that that was what happened. It was just a natural pendulum shift, which had some like factors that happened in my life that kind of pushed it forward, but a natural pendulum switch shift from like complete self-promotion and focus on my career to complete, for the most part, like other focus and trying to be mother Teresa, basically. Um, <laughs> and now I think I've hopefully landed. Hopefully um, I'm a little more recalibrated and landed somewhere in the middle.
4: My follow-up question was going to be based on the lyric you had for, uh, for this life, yeah, uh, which is uh, on the second verse where it says you spit, had to take a back, step back, reflect a little bit, reset intentions. Yes, and you yeah. obviously just answered that question. <laughs> um,
5: yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that song. And that's, um, and I, and once again, I still don't know if I made the right or wrong decision, but it's just like, this is, this is, this. at the end of the day, you just have to accept that there was, that was, you know, a part of your life necessary learning.
4: So when did you, you know, you obviously wrote some, some tracks between 2010 and now, yes. but when did you pick up a pen and start writing with the intent that this is going to be a part of an album?
5: Yeah. And for a while, I completely avoided that because it's almost like, I don't want to say trauma, but it's like the amount of energy I put into creating a record, recording a record, releasing a record and promoting a record. We're not talking months. We're talking years. Like, it's not like what people do now. Um, so I think you have to know you're signing up for that. And, and, and my husband, Mr. Lift, knows the same thing. It's like sometimes scary to pick up a pen and start writing a new record because you know what you're signing up for and you don't half-ass shit. Like We don't half-ass shit, you know what I'm saying? So it's knowing that you're signing up for something that can be all-consuming. Um, so So yeah, to answer your question, Probably So I had, as I mentioned, grants have always been the reason why I got shit done. So I felt well enough to write a grant for an album in 2018, spring of 2018. The grant was actually for an album with Moss, a follow-up record that was going to be called Amen. Mm-hmm. And we received notice that we got the grant in September. And it was due, I think, two years from that point. I had given myself a good leeway. It was supposed to be like a 10-year anniversary thing in 2020 and you know a lot of things changed and happened and and moss wasn't really able to to work on the album when i needed to work on the album and so uh with his blessing we actually switched the project over to rel who is totally worthy and he might not be as known as moss but his his caliber of production and 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 personhood is just as uh high in my in my mind and just as equal and uh and yeah we switched to like a year later we kind of recalibrated the entire project switched over to rel doing all the production and the rest is history and that's where we get this album so once again it started with writing a grant my loyalty
3: runs to- than the deep blue, a few that get my respect, they saw a gem and we went. Most people were tuned into what you do, or you, or you. Most of them were dudes, I'm used to that too. Ain't no complaining, that's just the rules. Been invisible and broke my way through the glass ceiling. Folks calling like they always supported. That ain't the truth, but I'll take it though. Right. I remember those times. Most people on my phone, now my ring is on silent.
4: You yeah, a lot happens. Obviously, in eleven years, you 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 have a, you have a two year old. Uh, you you're about to become a mother again for the second oh, time. Uh, yes. You know, you literally, uh,
5: I can go into labor in this interview right now.
4: <laughs> I'll call the I'm like doctor. Like thirty three weeks. Ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh. Um, so a lot obviously happens between you know the, the eleven years. Um, and obviously your writing processes, I imagine has changed yeah, at all because okay. you're writing for different, you're writing for, as you mentioned, you know, I, I think as you mentioned, you're kind of writing for yourself, um, yeah. in a way. Right. Uh, but also, you know, children have a big impact on that as well. How, do you find yourself with your child? I mean, do you find yourself writing differently? I guess, uh, with being a, because you're a mother now, um, mm-hmm. do, is that a, a I guess, is that a factor? Is your child a factor into what what lyrics you, you might put out there?
5: Not consciously. Like when I write, not consciously, but definitely on a subconscious or unconscious level. Absolutely. Just because I'm sure the actual cellular, like my cellular being, I'm sure has changed since becoming a mother, let alone the way I see the world and my future and everything in it. So I think it would be ignorant for me to say, oh, no, it doesn't impact the way I write. But I don't think I, when I put the pen to the page, I'm not thinking directly about, Ooh, what will perish. think if he hears this in 20 years. Um, but I've always tried to write music that is, that can be timeless, hopefully, in terms of its messages. Um, and I think I've changed a lot as a person by virtue of becoming a wife and a mother. It's been a lot of, like, <laughs> it's been very humbling. It can be humbling. It can be lonely. It can be isolating, but it's been very humbling um, for me to become a wife and a mother after being like kind of the center of my own universe as Eternia is. Um, (laughs) So if you, if you watch He-Man, so yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, that's the, the simplest way to answer that question. It's just like not intentionally, but I'm sure it
4: has impacted my writing. Uh, the, the, the name of the album free is, is a, is a name that really jumps out at you and, and really stands, mm-hmm. stands out to me. Uh, Thank you. You know, um, I want I want you to you talk about the, uh, can you break down the importance of this title for, for you?
5: So funny how it's changed in my mind in terms of what it means over the years, like since we started. So when we started free kind of meant the intention behind how we wanted to make this record. We wanted to make it in freedom. We want to feel free when we were making it. We didn't want to feel in any way stressed or confined to industry standards or what you should do when you're making a rap record. There's a lot of rules, especially with certain types of, I don't know, independent or underground, boom, bap, golden air, whatever hip hop you want to describe my music as. Um, there's often these like constraints, these unwritten rules. And I just kind of want to break free of all of that. Um, Especially things like, you know, the kind of features you need on your album. I'm like, F that. Like, I just want to work with people that I love their energy and I hang out with them outside of making music because they're just really cool people. Um, So, yes, it was the intention behind the album was to feel free. And I think subsequently that meaning has changed in a number of ways. Like, I think it got deeper than that. I think we were we, there's a lot of kind of references in the album to spiritual freedom, true freedom, the kind of freedom that, you know, Nelson Mandela could even feel well imprisoned, you know, like freedom of spirit, even if your body is not free or if your circumstances in life don't feel free. Um, what there, there's, So there's some spiritual elements to that title. And then also <laughs> my joke is that near the end of the record when I was trying to wrap it up and we did have to apply for extensions for this deadline and that we had, it was just like, yo, I'm going to feel free when this album drops. I'm not free now, but once the album drops, then it's like, woo, freedom! So it's meant a couple different things over the years. But yeah, the, the, I think that there's a theme and a focus on the album as a whole in this pursuit of mental emotional physical and spiritual freedom that that can be very elusive so there's like that tension between feeling free which to me is like a state of mind and a state of being and then all the things that we battle with in our life specifically inside you know the battlefield of the mind so whether that be anxiety or insecurity or jealousy or tension or fear or doubt or depression like these things that we battle with um in in our search or our desire to feel free
4: uh, so you t- if you take us to the the, the first thing on video, uh, most people uh, it, it takes place in uh, Queens, New York. Yes. yes. Um, what is this? And, and I, you know, I saw saw Steinway, so I knew right away. Uh, what is yeah. the uh, what for you? What's the significance of Queens, of New York, um, yeah. as, mm-hmm. as as the person, but also as as, as an artist?
5: Yeah, I'd say unequivocally, um, and this might be a, a controversial statement for me to make as a Canadian, but unequivocally, the place that I feel most at home is that block. That you see the, the signs for in, in that in that video, um, more at home even than in, in Toronto. Um, I, I I moved to Queens specifically Astoria in 2005. Well, the end of 2005. I was actually in Jersey for a year, and then I moved there. So like closer to 2006. I was there until 2013. And that doesn't sound like a long time, but for me, that's actually the longest I've ever lived in one place in my entire life, including childhood. So it's like a lifetime to me. Um, And the people that were there, my neighbors uh, and uh, everything about that neighborhood, which actually wasn't where I was doing most of my hip hop, where I was doing most of my stuff was in the city or in Brooklyn or in other places. But just coming home to that place every day was the most grounding and anchoring thing. And I also found that I really connected and related to the culture and the people there, which were, by the way, like older Italian families. Um, You know, I'm talking like people 50 plus that became dear family, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s um, that became family. And I think a, a reason why I just felt so at home, one of the reasons is I've always been very loud Actual audibly loud. And I've always spoken my mind in a way that can offend people that aren't so direct. But for me, it's never been offensive. It's just been you. Know, I'm like, actually, no filter telling you what I think. And anybody that knows me my entire life, even from childhood, would I, would I think describe me as that? Just somebody that, you know, I'll tell you what I think without a filter. And so moving there was like, I was finally with my own kind. You know what I'm saying? Because if you know anything about Italian families, if you know anything, it's just like they're loud and they will tell you, especially like Italian New Yorkers, They're loud and they will tell you what they think without a moment's hesitation. They're not gonna like put a filter on that shit. And so (laughs) I just I just remember just being like, oh man, I finally found my people. Like I'm just like because everywhere else I went, I was like an elephant in a china shop. It's like I'm offending people left and right, not even trying to. I'm just like, yo, I'm just not. I'm 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 not trying to offend you. I'm just trying to tell you what it is. So and New York City in general is more people don't have time for the extra pleasantries. They don't have time to, to to go out of their way to be polite. They're just like, yo. Like no matter where you go, people are just telling like they don't have time for that shit. So they just tell you exactly what it is. And I and I really appreciated that about the culture of New York City in general and then specifically about where I lived in Queens. So so I think for me and also, I mean, in addition to that, my highest height of my career in hip-hop, um, you know, the, the biggest peaks that I had reached personally, professionally, were, was when I was living there. So, all together, it's just like this bundle of, like, home. If I was to describe what home feels like, that's, that's what it is. The minute I walk out of Steinway Station and, and I'm on that block, I, I mean, I could—I'm just home.
4: So, um, so there's a, a line that stands out and on the track, and the it, line is, "Most people look at me like who let her in the spot." And it's a, it stands out because I have to tell you a story I heard uh, about you at South Paul Club in Brooklyn a while back.
5: Ah, uh, yes, which is uh, also home. South Paul is family. Yes, continue.
4: <laughs> so, he's, um, a DJ was telling me a story that he, uh, you know, there was a cipher going on, and not just like local MCs, but like Buckshot, I think, might have hopped on stage, and then you hopped on stage, and he the DJ at the time um kind of you, you stood out to him and like, you know, who is this girl? Um And he really like wanted to test you and your skills. And he kind of, I think he meant, you know, messed up the beat or whatever. And he said she didn't falter at all and she destroyed it. Um And I just wonder like what take, like, take us back. How, how do you get this confidence to, you know, go up on stage with just like a bunch of dudes and an MC MCs and DJs that are trying to mess you up and test you. And how, where does this confidence come from? But also then how do you, how do you overcome this, where I mean, this burden that, you know, how does this burden of testing does not get, not get too much for you?
5: That's a very good question. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I will say this after a while, it's almost become invisible to me. I always said I was like a horse with shutters on, like on my eyes, whatever you call those, those blinders right? Um, in the sense that people that were doing shit like that, it's almost like I didn't even notice. Like it was just like water off a duck's back at a certain point, but you build up the immunity. And I would say a couple of things. I'd, I'd say a part of it's just personality and how I was born and my genetics. My father had an insane amount of confidence bordering on, I don't know, Yeah, what is it when you're a masochist or whatever like he's just like or like um you know he's just he just is super confident i come from my father's side of the family are from turkey they're from a small village and they're like just like we are royalty (laughs) like so so i i imbued in me was a bit of that since i was very young like hey like you're you know you carry yourself a certain way when it comes to always being around dudes which yes uh i was predominantly always shoved in ciphers or on stages or in clubs or wherever just me and a bunch of dudes that I think was also natural for me by virtue of the fact that my father owned a nightclub and we were often there as kids and my father's uh underlings or the people that work for him I guess you could say were all like these like crazy burly tatted up like scary looking biker dudes you know and those are like my babysitters when I was like three, you know? <laughs> and so for me, when I see dudes that might look intimidating physically, I'm just like, oh, like, you're like a teddy bear to me. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, because yeah. I was raised around these people, they were my babysitters. So I think just being in a, in a room that's all men, um, being in a room that's all men that also like, you're like, yo, am I safe? Like, this is something that I was quite comfortable with just by virtue of how I was raised with my father. So that was something that in hindsight, it took me many years to realize that in hindsight, I'm like, oh yeah, that was kind of like something that I was trained for. I always had more male friends and female friends growing up, which a lot of women will say, but especially women in hip hop. Um, So for me, I felt very comfortable. Uh, You know, male friendships were just kind of where I was actually more comfortable than female friendships for a long time. And so there's all that. And then, and then the thick skin stuff is just like you develop that over time, yeah, you develop that over time, and you have to, I think, no more more than anything, you just kind of have to have this sense of, like, you know when people say, oh, what will they think? Like, this quote-unquote they,
4: yeah. Yeah. this
5: elusive who are they, you know? I always thought that was bullshit. I was raised by two very independent people. My mother and my father do not, both don't really care about they too much. You know what I'm saying? So I was naturally raised like, yeah, no, like, and my brother and my sister are the same way. I don't think we care too much about they, you know? So I think a lot of it was just having confidence in yourself, knowing, yes, I, I, I believe I can rap. I believe I'm good. And then whatever whoever they are, they don't get a vote. They don't matter. And that's not to say that comments didn't hurt me i learned very early on especially when it came to um comments in blogs or like we're talking like even in the 90s and like those bulletin board rooms yeah. or whatever um comments underneath your videos and youtube like i learned early not to scroll down like back in the day all of my comments like it would be an amazing article like, it could have been an article in like hip-hop dx or something and it would be like really positive you know and then all the comments underneath would be like the most demeaning shit you've ever read in your life really demeaning shit and I learned early on and by early on I just mean like previous to 2005 before my first album I just learned you don't scroll down just don't scroll down like that's the biggest advice I would give other female MCs it's just like yeah don't scroll down like you don't need to hear that peanut gallery shit it's irrelevant to you so so yeah there's a little bit of everything there and then of course just over time Being supported by, I must mention this, it doesn't all come from within me, being supported by people that do matter to you in your life, that do say, yo, we're going to put our money or our time or our energy or whatever behind you to support you because we believe that you are worthy of being in this spot in hip hop. Um, That really fortifies you because I always said I would choose what. What uh, information to take in and allow it to seep into my consciousness and my being. And I, and I would try my best to choose those things that were, there's a scripture I love. It's like whatever is. I'm butchering it, but it's like whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good rapport, whatever is honorable, whatever is, um, you know, whatever honest, think about these things, meditate on these things. So in my life, I've done my best to try and only take in that kind of feedback. Um, I don't mind critical feedback as well from people that love me, but, but taking on the kind of feedback that you know is, uh, constructive, not destructive.
4: Uh, you know, and, and, you know, in the video, you, uh, you you do give, you you, you you put up names to give, you know, shout outs and you know th- and obviously thank yous uh, of support. And yes. you know, four four names that really I mean, a lot of names stand out to me, but there's four names that stand out because I think the lyrics that accompanied it stood out to me as well and the names are DJ Premier, DJ Eclipse, Mr. Lif and MERS. Yeah. Uh, and these lyrics are and these four names are accompanied with the lyrics when you spit. Um and I hopefully don't butcher this too much. Uh, most of them were Don't w- used to
3: that too. Ain't no complaining, that's just the rules, been invisible and broke my way through the glass ceiling, folks like they always supported that
4: ain't the truth. Um, but can you talk you about know, kind of the significance of each of these, these artists, in artists, um, artists to our you and your career and as our an our MC? Show. Wow, yeah,
5: sure. Um, so, one of the inspirations behind all the names that I put up in most people, including those people, were people that did not have to, uh, whatever you want to call it, put their neck on the line for me or stick their head like neck out. Like, they didn't have to do it. There's nothing in there career that necessarily they would benefit from, from supporting me. You know what I'm saying? And they all did. And so for me, that is like an extra um, point of gratitude because it's like, you didn't have to do this. You're bigger than me. You're in a position of power. You, 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 everything's going fine for you. You don't have to look out for me. And um, so, so premiere, well, eclipse, and actually I would say, well, okay. So eclipse has always, well, since I moved to New York city, he's always just been someone who's like very, I would say objective in a way, pragmatic. Like he's just like, yo, either you're dope or you're not. Like he doesn't like, (laughs) it's not, there's no emotion involved. It's just like, yo, either you're dope or you're not. And, And he just tells it like it is. And so for him to just be like, yeah, like, um he told me this recently, but it's just like I heard her, I didn't even see her, didn't know what she looked like, heard her was like, Okay, this is dope, like you know what I mean? Yeah, um right. that that's just a huge but then because he thinks that, like there's this thing in this in New York specifically that I love that there's this loyalty. So if you hear somebody and you think they're dope and you're in a position of what I would say power, whether that be with radio or with um curating showcases, like, you know, Eclipse had a big hand in Rocksteady or whatever it is, it's like, um, you actually act on. I heard this, and I think it's dope. Because a lot of people will hear me, by the way, and be like, "Yo," on the side. They'll be like, "Yo, you're dope," but you don't see their actions supporting that. You know, right? Right. Um, and I don't expect it. I don't expect it. But but it's it's nice when someone does. And and Eclipse did consistently, not just once. Like he could do it once. He could be like, "Okay, come up to my radio show one day," and then that's it. But consistently. He was playing the records consistently. He was inviting me on the show consistently. He was, you know, giving me a platform when he had an option to, to put people on stages. like consistently, he wasn't the only one, but definitely one of them. And I felt that. And I do think that even impacted Premiere. I'm not saying it was because of Eclipse. I also know that Moss was um, a production partner with Premiere when, when I started working on the album with Moss, but, but both, you know, coming from different angles, I think Premiere really trusts his, Wise counsel, and I think that Eclipse is somebody that he really trusts his ear. They share music with each other, and so Premier, as as I've been told, Premier chooses what he wants to play. But he might get, you know, he might get some good music from E to check out, and and so I think there was that. And obviously Moss played a huge role in in kind of putting. But once again, I must mention, it's not because of Moss's production partnership with Premier that I got love from Premier. It's because okay. the music was dope. So it's like you know, luck is when preparedness meets opportunity. You know you have to be prepared and there's this opportunity here um and so so yeah once again premiere showing love to me i remember when at last drop we were up on his radio show at satellite in the office uh, serious satellite radio in in his office there or the studio part of me for like i want to say two hours and i want to say he cut up almost the entire record like he was just playing almost the entire album for over an hour and that's something that's just like unprecedented I, I still don't really understand that um so yeah people like premier and once again he'll just be like yo if it's dope it's dope somewhere to e you know if it's dope it's dope there's no feelings or no emotions or no whatever politics and i love that i love people like that um especially because they're so rare in the music business and then mers same thing so actually i have this i have this amazing memory of mers it was 1997 at rocksteady and this was back when it was still in gaelic park in the bronx and then manhattan center would have um like one of the main finale concerts on like the Sunday or whatever. And Mers was there that that weekend. I was rolling with Apathy. I was in Demigods. And we were kind of all peers at that point. And um, actually, I didn't remember this. We had ciphered earlier that weekend in like a a subway car in the Bronx leaving Gaelic Park. We had like all like just been in this crazy cipher together, which somebody has to have video footage of that. I'd love to see that. But um, I think Mers was there too. So we were like kind of like bucking up with him over the weekend. And maybe we had some mutual peoples. I don't know. I don't remember if it was just like a random thing or if we knew some people. But then on, on the Sunday, I had my rock, I always tell this story, God, forgive me, Merz. I had my lanyard and it was like my 1997, I, it was 1997, 97 might've been the 20 year anniversary of rock study. I don't remember, but I had my like, my my beautiful lanyard. And I remember him coming up to me and he's just like, yo, let me have your lanyard. And i just remember looking at him like, who are you? I'm like, are you crazy? I'm like, I'm not giving you my lanyard. Like I just looked at him like he was crazy. I was like, I'm not giving you my lanyard and uh and but we were cool you know and, and he, would, he didn't take offense i think he thought it was a long shot to begin with but uh that's my first memory of mers and subsequently like we just always knew each other um in the scene in the independent scene i'm thinking like kind of deaf days, you know and um and always had respect for each other, and I think would always would often run into each other in different places, whether actually physically or just um, you know our names uh, and different things and then of course, he blew the f up i 'm um, really proud of him, I think he 's just a really great business model of how to do it independently and and do it right um, he 's just a brilliant mind and And so over the years, once again, he didn't have to reach back and kind of pull me up. But there's been times where he's reached back and pulled me up and he didn't have to. And one of those times was putting me on like the main stage at paid dues in 2011. A bigger stage than at the time uh, Kendrick Lamar in 2011 rocked paid dues with his crew. Uh, But it was like a smaller stage than that. Like it was the main stage. I hit it more than once that day because I jumped on again at the end of the day with Sage Francis and it was probably one of the biggest moments in my career I would say um in hindsight um, everyone was there that year and it was just and I was honored in a way that was like, no, this isn't just an up and coming person like this is somebody who deserves to be here and And when you give someone like me, who is an underdog, that kind of spotlight, we really we take it, we run with it, and I think the crowd really accepted me, even though a lot of them I probably had never heard of me before. Like, you know, I I think there was over ten thousand people there that day. I don't remember how many. It was a lot. And um they accepted me as I deserve to be on that stage, not who is this person, you know? Mm-hmm. Like they yeah. wild out. And so stuff like that. And he's and even now he is promoting the album on his IG stories, you know. Uh he doesn't have to do that. And so um, so yeah, and that's MERS. And then Lif, oh man, like this, these stories are all so long <laughs> in and of themselves, uh, sorry. But um, but Lif, I met in 2000 at CMJ um, Music Festival in New York City. And when we met, we immediately hit it off um, just on like a spiritual, cerebral level uh, beyond hip hop. But he always looked out for me, again, did not have to. And my one main memory I have, although he did many, was I was in Australia a couple of years later, 2003 or 2004, 2004. And I just landed in Australia. Nobody really, I mean, some people knew I had actually reached out to some heads to like try, I wanted to get into the hip hop scene there, like really take over really. And um, some people knew about me and knew I was there, but, but really nobody knew. And I saw that Lyft was coming the same month that I landed. I think I got there end of February. And in March, she had a headlining show at this larger venue there. And I reached out to him and I I, I've done this maybe once in my career. Like I don't normally ask people for shit, but I reached out to him and I was like, yo, can you let me open for you? And for him it was nothing. He was like, Of course. And I remember him having to have a conversation with the promoter. Like, when when artists say to you, Yes, you can open for me, what a promoter will do is be like, Cool, I'm gonna put her on so early, no one's gonna see her, and then we're gonna have some DJs and some of our local people, and then you can come on. And so right. an artist has to advocate, like they have to say, No, I mean like right before me. Like I want her to open for me. Like one below used to do that too. He used to be like, No, like she's not going on early, she's going on right before me. You know what I'm saying? So one below his name should have been in that video. I, I don't know how I missed that. Um, but yeah, so, um, so yeah, Liff uh said, sure, no problem. And I killed a set for maybe 10 minutes right before he rocked. And it was a you know, a packed house, and he was the headliner. And that opened so many doors for me when it came to these five months that I lived in Australia and Sydney, Australia, by virtue of just everybody who was in hip hop being at that show. And so things like that, like he did other stuff for me too. Um, but things like that. Uh, are just game changers, you know what I'm saying? And, and once again, they don't have to do it, and they do it.
4: Right. I think that that's the important part, right? Is that the, it's 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 all these artists, it's the, it's their credibility on the line too, right? Exactly. Like yeah. They're not going in major to, ways. Like if I I can't rap for the life of me, but if I asked, like if I knew Premiere, I was like, hey, could you put this on? He would definitely not, because <laughs> <laughs> he would be laughed out of the stadium. But um, right. So obviously, I I appreciate the time you've taken, I know we've been going for a while. Now. I just have one more question. Um, you know, as we mentioned, uh, first album in eleven years, lots have changed for you, not just as an artist, but in your personal life as well. and and obviously, the promotional aspect, I think of music has changed a lot as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what yeah. what's what happens now for you? I mean, you know usually what happens is what the, the album drops, you go on tour, you sell merch you know, you tour for as much as you can to, you know, make as much as you want, you know, can for the album, uh, -hmm. and then you go home. Uh, is that the plan for you? I mean, I know you mentioned like, well, it's not really, yeah. Like, you know, this album, it's called free. So a lot of it's about, you you know, for you. Um, so what do you, what do you want to do now?
5: Yeah. In terms of promoting the record or in life?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's, (laughs) <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I feel that's so, that's a question I don't even know the answer to for myself. Right, right, right. <laughs> what
3: do you want
5: me to focus on in this answer?
3: Uh,
4: I guess in terms of in terms of uh in terms of the the album and the music. The
5: music, yeah. yeah. So um I'm actually grateful. I, I, I wanna say in a sense I'm grateful for COVID, which I know is also a controversial statement, but it has moved a lot of things even more digitally and online and virtual than it ever has, than it ever was before. And that's really actually just helpful to me at this moment being that I can't physically just by virtue of how pregnant I am and also my family needs and all that um, as, a, as, a, as a new mom of, of young children. I can't do what I used to do, and, and what I used to do might not even be relevant in the industry anymore. Who knows? But I can't just go and hit every radio show physically, go and hit every stage that I'm invited on physically, right. and, um, and just be all up in the spots everywhere that I need to be to remind people that this album exists, which is exactly what I did for Ad Last and for It's Called Life. I can't uh, do that. So the, the fact that now most things are done virtually is just such a blessing for me. I can still promote this record. I think in the past publicists or promoters would have been like, yo, we can't help you with this album. If you can't be out there touring, you know what I'm saying? But, but now they can. And so, and people almost don't expect you to tour. So it's a beautiful time for me for that. Um, God's timing, divine timing. Um, in terms of uh, you know, and we're open. Like Liff and I, in theory, are like, "Yo, if the opportunity is right, we'll go wherever to do a show." But but obviously, things have to be drastically different if I'm bringing my family with me and all that, mm-hmm. and, a, and a newborn that's still breastfeeding. It's just like a whole different game, you know. I think. For me, I, if I could just speak on it on like a, like a bigger level, I yes, the game has changed completely and we're doing our best shout out to, to my publicist, Matt Diamond, uh, Diamond Media, who's just been killing the game on a budget. Like just, you know, he, he puts his all into everything he does. He actually worked the Vanguard record that Lyft did with Stu Bangas and, it's one of the reasons why we 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 signed him up for this, but he's just been killing the game And my manager too, Sav, who always kind of played publicist roles in in as a manager for me. But um I think you know we're doing we're doing our best to do it justice. I, my 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 motto has always been do your best, God does the rest. You know what I'm saying? Like if I know I crossed all my T's and dotted all my I's and gave it my best effort and it okay. sinks at least i can be like all right that's god's will because i did my best you know what i'm saying like but if i don't do my best then it's on me you know so um so so that's what we're doing we're doing our best personally um i think it will be beautiful for this album to drop as it is before the baby comes the baby's due like maybe 2 weeks after the album drops could come earlier right. so you know the album drops the baby comes and then i'm actually dealing with like a health situation right now where they discovered cancer in my kidney. And so, uh, thankfully there's no, it's, 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 it's actually a blessing because it's early detection and there's actually no okay. symptoms or anything. I'm not receiving treatment, but they, what happens with kidney cancer, renal cell carcinoma is they actually just cut it out. Normally chemo is not the therapy. So they're waiting for me to give birth and then they're going to cut that out. So for me, it's like dropping this album is very symbolic of uh, I'm really glad I'm getting this out before my life changes drastically, perhaps, you know, in a bunch of ways. I don't know what ways. My life's going to change drastically having two kids instead of one. My life's going to change probably in some ways um, by, by having this kind of major surgery. So, and we hope it doesn't come back, but you never know. Right. right with cancer. So, so yeah, I think those things, like those other elements, the personal elements in my life have just been propelling me more to just give this, all I got because it might be the last time. Um, And I know artists always say that, but really and truly, you know, so, so I just got to, I, I, I'm blessed to be able to do this. And it's also just, I'm talking a lot, but the last thing I'll say is it's kind of like the one aspect of my life right now. That's like completely just me, like Eternia. It's not the mother or the wife or the, this medical patient or whatever it's just like i can just be fully in my identity when i'm when i'm even talking to you right now tim in this interview um it's just very fulfilling for me and so i think the process of promoting this no matter what happens is extremely fulfilling it's very full circle
4: so the new album is free with uh, Rob McCoy, uh, Eternia. It's it's really been truly an honor to uh, to finally talk to you uh, on Live library of Rap, the Hip Hop To my guy, I greatly appreciate your time. Thank you so much, me
3: they saw a gem and me when most people were tuned in to what you do Or you, or you, most of them were dudes I'm used to that too, ain't no complaining, that's just the rules Been invisible and broke my way through the glass ceiling Folks calling like they always supported That ain't the truth, but I'll take it though right. I remember those times, most people on my phone Now my ringer's on silent, Felt on top of the world On some tipping point shit, then I left before they could evict The strange part of it is, I don't know if it was God or my sin Self-sabotage, the wisdom of the ages kicking in